Okay, we have been we have been discussing the Mula Pariyasu, the discourse on the root of existence. And last time we went through all of the twenty-four bases of conceiving in the case of the uninstructed worldling. Now just to review, in this sutta the Buddha is describing the cognitive process, the mental way of mental functioning of four types of individuals. First the uninstructed worldling, then comes the seka, the disciple in higher training, then the arahant, the person who has completed the training, and finally the tathagata, the Buddha himself. In our first two sessions on the sutta, we discuss the cognitive process of the uninstructed worldling. And we saw that in the case of the worldling, when he comes into contact with any object, first, the Buddha says, he perceives that object as it is. He perceives, for example, earth as earth, which, according to the commentary, means that he already has a kind of distorted perception. When the text says he perceives earth as earth, it doesn't mean that he perceives it accurately, exactly the way it is, but rather in the sense that he grasps the object, he grasps it in his perception as a solid mass. He accepts the object at its base value. Rather than analyzing and investigating, he just accepts the appearances of, the, of things. And on the basis of this mistaken perception, then he engages in various mental constructions or thought constructions, which the Buddha sums up by saying that he conceives the object, he conceives in the object, he conceives apart from the object, he conceives the object to be mine. All of these ways of conceiving are different ways in which the worldling establishes some kind of relationship between the notions of I and mine and the various objects of perception. So what he is really conceiving when he conceives the object, he is conceiving the notions I and mine in relation to the object. Either he takes the object directly to be I myself, or he conceives himself to be existing in the object, or he conceives himself to be someone or something existing apart from, separate from the object, or else he simply grasps object as mine. Then the Buddha says, he delights in the object. And the word that he uses here, abhinanda, is a, this quite a significant word, which is pregnant with a particular meaning that comes out in other texts. What is suggested by the idea of delighting in something 
uh, delighting in it with tanha, with craving. Sometimes the word abhinandati is used in a favorable sense. For example, when monks hear a sermon, then it's said that they delight in the word of the Blessed One. But in this case, abhinandati has the sense of seeking the light, trying to extract pleasure from the objects of perception. And that seeking for pleasure, that drive to extract enjoyment from the objects, this is the work of craving. Then the Buddha says, raises the question, why is this the case? Why does the worldling think in this way? Then he says, because he has not fully understood it. That means, in effect, because he is still immersed in avijja, in ignorance. And so we use the sequence of dependent origination. Because of ignorance, there is craving. Because of craving, there are the notions I and mine. And because of the notions I and mine, then one conceives I and mine in relation to the object. Then the Buddha elaborates this process of conceiving in relation to 24 objects or bases ranging from the four physical elements, earth, water, fire, and air, all the ways up to the most refined formless objects, base of infinite space, base of infinite consciousness, and so on, then taking such abstract notions as unity and diversity, the all, and finally, nirvana. Even the ultimate reality, the unconditioned, the worldling will misconceive and wrongly construe. Okay, now we come to the next major section of the sutta, which in the texts that have come down it's extremely compressed. This deals with the seka. The seka is the trainee, the disciple in higher training. The word seka is used as a technical term for somebody at the minimal level of one who has reached the path to stream entry. All the ways up to one who has reached the path to arahanship. And this person is called the trainee, seka, because he is one who engages in the higher training, the three higher trainings. These are the adhisila seka, the training in higher virtue, the adhichitta seka, the training in the higher mind or in concentration, and adhipanya seka, the training in the higher wisdom. Now before one becomes a trainee, a disciple in training, there is a certain intermediate stage between 
the uninstructed worldling and the trainee, which is not mentioned in the sutta, in this sutta. This is the stage of what is called the good or virtuous worldling. In Pali, it's Kalyana Putrutra. This person is called a worldling because he has still not reached even the lowest stage of the Aryans, of the noble ones, not yet entered upon the definite path leading irreversibly to Nibbana, to ultimate deliverance. But unlike the uninstructed worldling, the blind worldling, who is said to be unskilled and undisciplined in the Dhamma of the Noble Ones, without regard for the true men, unskilled and undisciplined in their Dhamma. The virtuous worldling is one who has a clear conceptual understanding of the Dhamma. Somebody who has studied the Dhamma, reflected upon it well, and has accepted it as his guide to life. And this person has not only accepted the Dhamma, but is engaged in the practice. It's one who is living in conformity with the threefold training not yet fully engaged in the training because he hasn't yet reached the stage of stream entry or not yet reached the path of stream entry but one who is practicing who has accepted the precepts the basic precepts if a lay person one who is adhering quite rigorously to the five precepts maybe taking the eight precepts from time to time if a bhikkhu or nun and one who is following the precepts laid down for the ordained disciple. And this is a person who is not only observing sila, but is also engaged in cultivating the concentration and insight. Somebody, according to the commentary, who is practicing to some extent the 37 factors or aids to enlightenment. Okay, as this person advances through the practice on the basis of sila, develops, developing some degree of samadhi, on the basis of samadhi, developing vipassana, insight. A certain point is reached where the person undergoes a kind of inner transformation, a turning, we say, a turning about at the basis of consciousness, whereby this person gains such deep insight into the Dhamma, into the impermanent, suffering, selfless nature of phenomena, that the person enters irreversibly upon the path leading to enlightenment. According to the suttas, disciples can do this in one of two ways, 
depending upon their different temperaments. The suttas mention that there are some disciples whose approach to practice is motivated primarily by sadha, by faith. And this person resolved on the teaching faith in the Buddha, faith in the Dhamma, faith in the Sangha, and by being impelled in the practice by the power of faith, eventually this person undergoes that transformation and enters irreversibly upon the way to stream entry. This type of person is called in the text a saddhanusari, one who follows along through faith. When the person is called a saddhanusari, this doesn't mean that he can enter upon the path simply through faith alone, through mere faith. In order to enter upon the path, one has to develop virtue, concentration, and wisdom. And it is actually insight or wisdom which brings the person onto the faith, on, onto the path. But this person is called a sadhanosari because his motivation is the driving force of his inner life is this faith and devotion to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. It's not blind faith. It's certainly not blind faith. This is a person who has investigated the teaching, of course, who has gained some understanding of it. I mean, blind faith is left behind even when in the stage of being a virtuous whirling. But it's rather that the person is of the temperament as such that faith, devotion, an emotional commitment to the Dhamma and its ideals is what motivates the person's practice. And so one shouldn't think, as many people do, that oh, Buddhism is for intellectual types and it's only for intellectual types it's, and that people who are, whose practice is mostly driven by faith that those are just sort of blind, ordinary people who are just conforming to traditional rites and rituals. But faith is a very important factor in leading the spiritual life. And probably for most people, it is actually the factor which leads them onto them. But the faith eventually has to culminate in some insight. Without the insight, then one just remains forever mired in faith. Okay, the other type of person who reaches the path is one whose approach is more intellectual, more investigative. This is the kind of person who is not so much inclined to submit himself in devotion to the teaching, but this is the person who wants to investigate, examine, to find out the truth for himself. Perhaps beginning skeptically, but then at a certain point the skepticism will break down and they'll gain some degree of faith. Without faith, we're not really engaged 
wholeheartedly in the practice at all. But what motivates the person's practice is this urge to know the truth, to realize the truth. And so this person emphasizes investigation, examination, or wisdom. You say the driving force of this person's life is panya, wisdom. I don't know why the text called one, this one a dhammanusari instead of calling him a pan, panyanusari. Panyanusari. But anyway, that's the way <laughs> it comes down. Okay, and what unites these two persons? First, is that they have the five spiritual faculties. The spiritual faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. So even the Sadhanasari, the faith follower, has the faculty of wisdom. But in that person, faith and devotion are predominant over wisdom. In the the Dhammanasari, also has the faculty of faith. But in that person, wisdom is dominant over faith. And both disciples have to bring these faculties into some degree of balance and they have to strengthen the faculties by repeated development of the path, of the practice. Now, the Buddha says of both these persons that they have transcended the plane of the worldly. They have gone beyond the the plane of Bhutujana. They've entered upon the fixed, the technical term is the fixed course of rightness, which means they've entered upon the truly transcendental Noble Eightfold Path. And what's very important, he says of them that they are incapable of passing away without having realized the fruit of stream entry. So that's why we understand them to be the two persons who are on the path of stream entry. And the Buddha says that even, maybe the Buddha, maybe it's the commentary, even this world system might collapse, but it these persons won't die <laughs> without having realized the fruit of stream entry. They have to realize the fruit before their death. This is the position of the suttas, which is somewhat different from the later position of the commentaries, which say that the path of stream entry is just one mind moment followed immediately by the fruit. But in the old sutta teaching, it doesn't say how long but it seems one can be on the path of stream entry for a certain period of time. But what is definite is that before dying one has to realize the truth. Okay, when one becomes either a Sadhanosari or Dhammanosari, 
then one becomes a disciple in higher training. As the disciple proceeds along the path, eventually he will realize the fruit. And by bringing the path to, let's put it this way, as the disciple proceeds along the path, when the development of the path reaches its culmination, when the five faculties are brought into balance and reach a certain level of strength, then the mind will cut off permanently three fetters which have bound that person to samsara through beginningless time. These are the three fetters of what's called Sakaya Titi, the view of a self, doubt about the Buddha and his teaching, and Sila Bhakta Paramasa, clinging, grasping, distorted grasping of rules and observance. Okay, if the person is going to proceed further, then they will again take up the training, the threefold training, particularly now the training in insight. And as they develop further, they'll at a certain point undergo a change and enter upon the path leading to the fruit at once returning. When they bring that fruit, when they bring that path to its culmination, then they weaken two more fetters. Those are the two fetters of sensual desire and ill will. Sensual desire and anger. These are now just weakened, not yet eliminated, but they are weakened so that they don't arise frequently and don't arise often. And when these two fetters are weakened, then the person becomes a once return. This person will return, after having passed away as a human being, the person can either be reborn once more in the higher worlds, the Deva world, and then reach final liberation there, or else the person might be reborn in the Deva world come back one more time to the human realm and then reach final liberation here. But the person doesn't go undergo more than two rebirths. Okay, supposing the person is not content with that, then they will undertake, again undertake the training, develop the five faculties to a higher degree, when those five faculties reach a certain level of maturity, they will enter upon the path of the non-returning. And when that path comes to its culmination, then they will cut off permanently, irreversibly, those two fetters of sensual desire and anger, so that the person can never again be overcome by any thought of sensuality or by any thought of anger and ill will. This person is called an anagami, a non-returner, one who never returns to the sensuous realm of existence. 
this is against the background of the Buddhist cosmology, to the sense sphere. But this person is not yet fully liberated from samsara. This person will be, if he dies as a non-returner, then he will be reborn in the realm of form, the Rupadhat. This is the realms of existence beyond the sensual realm. And in the form realm, the person will arise as a powerful deity, a Brahma deity, and will achieve final liberation from the form realm. Generally, it's said that the Anagamis are reborn in a special section of the form realm called the pure abode, Sudhavasa, in which only Anagamis can be reborn. Okay, the next stage beyond non-returner is that of Arachim, but at this point we have, haven't yet reached that stage. Okay, so generally we think in terms of the person who has entered on the path to stream entry and the stream enterer, the once returner, and the non-returner. Those persons are known as disciples in higher training, the sacred. Okay, and now the Buddha is explaining the cognitive process of the training, the disciple and higher training. He says, here I'm in paragraph 27 of the text, a bhikkhu who is in higher training, whose mind has not yet reached the goal, and who is still aspiring to the supreme security from bondage, directly knows earth as earth. Having directly known earth as earth, he should not conceive earth, he should not conceive in earth, he should not conceive apart from earth, he could, should not conceive earth to be mine, he should not delight in earth. Why is that? So that he may fully understand it, I say. Then the same thing is repeated for all the other 23 objects from the four elements up to Nibbana. Okay. When we take the first stage in the cognitive process, of the training. What do we notice at once? The way it is distinguished from the world. No, no, no. We're just working with the text here. Excuse me? Exactly. In the case of the worldling, it says he perceives whatever object, earth, as earth. But here he directly knows earth as earth. The verb that's used is abhijanat. In the case of perception, in the case of the worldling, it's sanjanati. 
the verb sanchanati gives us the noun sanya, which means perception. And of course, perception is something which is common to all sentient beings, even ants and mosquitoes and monkeys. tadpoles, everything right up to the highest gods have sanya perception except the asanya sattvas, the devas, the special class of gods without perception. But it's only in the case of the trainee, of the disciple and higher training that one says that this one directly knows the prefix Abhi, actually it's better, has a better sense of that of higher knowledge rather than direct knowledge. It's a superior mode of knowing. You notice that both Sanjanati and Abhijanati, they, their stem is the verb Janati, to know. The prefix gives different nuance to it. Sanjanati, somehow has come to mean perception or even conception. Discrimination. Whereas Abhijanati gives us the noun Abhinya, which is higher knowledge, superior knowledge. And so the trainee is one who has a superior knowledge of the object. What isn't mentioned here is the stage of initial perception, which I presume would be the same for both the worldling and the higher the training. They would come in the process of cognition, an initial stage of perception where the object just presents itself before the mind sets about to work on the object. That is, would be the same for all people, and so there's no need for the Buddha to have made, to make any distinction between them. But it's in the moment right after that initial moment of bare perception that the worldless mind goes off into grasping the percept as a whole and then building up deluded conceptions on the basis of that distorted perception. Whereas the instructed disciple, the disciple in higher training, directly knows the object as it is. And to directly know the object as it is means to know it, to understand it in terms of, in the way of explanation, in terms of the four noble truth. That is, he will understand whatever object he perceives, he cognizes, he will be able to relate it to the four noble truths. For example, any sense object he will know is part of the five aggregates. And so he understands these five aggregates are dukkha, the noble truth of suffering. He knows that suffering arises from craving, that suffering ceases with the cessation of craving, 
and that the Noble Eightfold Path is the way to the cessation of suffering. He will also know the object directly in relation to the three characteristics of existence as impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. He'll know the object also as conditioned, dependent, arisen through conditions, dependently arisen, and so subject to destruction, to cessation, to dissolution. Okay, now the Buddha gives advice to the disciple in higher training. This is important. Here he uses in Pali, this is what is called, it's not the indicative or the descriptive type of verb, but it's the imperative, a command verb. A command verb. He says, yeah, actually it's better translated as a joke into English as an imperative. Let him not conceive earth. Let him not conceive in earth. Let him not conceive apart from earth. Let him not conceive earth as mine. Let him not delight in earth. Okay, now the reason why the Buddha gives this advice to the training is because there are three basic forces behind conceiving. I explained these, I think, the last, in the last class. The three forces that underlie conceiving are tanha, mana, craving, conceit, and wrong view. Okay, now through craving, the mind gives rise to the notion, the conceiving of mind, taking things to be mine, the ideas, ideas which are stamped by possessiveness, by appropriation, by acquisition. Those ideas and thoughts are driven by craving. Conceit, this isn't just the conceit of pride or arrogance, but it is the asmi mana, the conceit I am. This gives no rise to the notion of I, the appearance of some I looming in the background behind experience for the notion that I am, that I exist, that there is some kind of real I at the center of our being. Then wrong view gives rise to such notions as this is myself, this I am. Okay, those are the three basic types of conceiving. Now, when the disciple becomes a stream enter, moves from the stage of one on the path to the stage of stream enterer, then he cuts off permanently all wrong views. So the disciple on the 
the one from the stream entera on, can never again grasp anything with the notion, this is myself. He can never accept any views that posit a permanent self, never accept any theories of an eternal self, permanent Atman. But even an anagami, a non-returner, one at the third stage of enlightenment, just short of arahanship, can still still has the tendency to craving and conceit. And so this disciple can still give rise to the notions of mind, I, and I am. To what I said earlier that this Mulapariyaya Sutta is extremely compressed, very compact. And so to understand it, it's important to illuminate it with light shed by other suttas. And there's one sutta, a short sutta in particular, which helps to understand quite clearly this section on the training. This is a sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya called the Kemaka Sutta. It's in the Kanda Samyutta, chapter 22, sutta number 89. There was a monk named Venerable Kemaka who was living at Kosambi and he was sick, very ill. Then some other monks sent a messenger to him and to find out how he was doing and Venable Kamaka replied to the messenger that he's very ill, suffering a lot of pain and his condition is getting worse, not better. Then the other monks send the messenger back and they say They say, give this message to Kemaka. There are these five aggregates spoken of by the Master, by the Buddha. Material, physical form, feeling, perception, the mental formations and consciousness. Does the Venerable Kemaka regard anything among these five aggregates as a self or as the property of the self? So the messenger goes, delivers his message, and Venerable Kamaka says, No, I do not regard anything amongst these five aggregates as a self or as the property of a self. So when the messenger comes back and gives the message, then the monks say, they come to the conclusion, then the Venerable Kamaka must be an arahant, one whose defilements are destroyed. So then the messenger goes back and tells Kamaka, you must be an arahant, one whose defilements are destroyed. Then finally, Venerable Kamaka himself, though he's sick, he doesn't want to wear out this messenger going back and forth 
all, all the time. So he comes to the monks and he tells them that even though he doesn't regard anything among the five aggregates as a self or as the property of the self, yet, he says, I am not an arhant, one whose pains are destroyed. The reason is that the notion I am has not yet vanished in me in relation to the five other beings. So I do not regard anything amongst them as this I am. That is, he still thinks in terms of I, I am. That idea still arises in his mind, but he doesn't accept it as pointing to a real I. So he doesn't buy into this notion and think that therefore there is some self to be found amongst the five aggregates. Okay, then the monks are puzzled by this and they say, how is this? When you speak of this I am, do you think of form as I am, feeling, perception, the mental formation, consciousness? What is it that you speak of as I am? Then Venerable Kainika says, I do not regard anything whether form, feeling, perception, and so on, as I am, nor do I speak of I am apart from these five aggregates. Still, however, the notion I am has not yet vanished in me in relation to these five aggregates. Then he uses an example or simile. He says, suppose there is a lotus flower and the lotus flower gives off a scent. Would one be speaking rightly if one would say the scent belongs to the petals or the scent belongs to the stem or the scent belongs to the pistol? And the answer in each case is no. And how would one be answering rightly? One would say the scent belongs to the whole flower. And so Kaimaka says, I do not speak of form as I am, or feeling, perception, the mental formations, or consciousness. However, the notion I am has not yet vanished in me in relation to the five aggregates. Then he goes further, and he says, even though a noble disciple has abandoned the five lower fetters. This means even though he is a non-returner, an anagami, still in relation to the five aggregates, there lingers in him a subtle conceit, I am, a subtle desire, I am, a subtle underlying tendency, I am, that has not yet been uprooted. But he goes on contemplating the rise and fall 
in these five aggregates form, feeling, perception, the mental formation, consciousness, observing them, arising and passing away, arising and passing away. And as he dwells thus, engaged in this contemplation, and that subtle conceit I am, that desire I am, dependency I am, this comes to be uprooted. And with the uprooting of the conceit I am, that means the attainment of then Kamata, this venerable Kamata uses a simile to illustrate this. He says it's like a cloth which has become soiled and stained. Then the owners give it to the to the owners give it to the laundry shop. And the laundry man takes that dirty cloth both sly and cowgun. Nowadays, of course, we have laundry, so in those days it was a more difficult method. So he would take the salt, the lye, and cow dung and use them to wash the dirty cloth. Then afterwards he would rinse it in clean water. Now, even though the cloth would then become pure and clean, it would still have the smell of the cleaning salts, lye or cow dung, which is not yet vanished. Then the laundryman would give it back to the owners, and the owners would put it in a perfume casket and keep it there for some time, and as a result, that smell of the salt, lye or cow dung, that would disappear. Okay, the soil, dirty cloth, is like the mind, say, of the whirlwind, which is dirty, defiled by all the different defilements. Then cleaning that dirty cloth to the point with the lye and salt and so on, to the point where all of the dirt and stain, all the dirt and stains disappear. That seems to be analogous to reaching the stage of anagami, where the five lower fetters, including the passions of sensual lust and anger, have disappeared. But there is still, even in the non-returner, the anagami, this notion, I am, which is called a conceit, a desire, a tendency then developing the contemplation on impermanence, on rise and fall, that is like taking the cloth and putting it in the perfume casket to get rid of the smell of the lye and cowpox. And by continuing with that contemplation, then even the subtle notion, I am, disappears. That is like the well, like the, that is like the elimination of the smell of the soul from the lie through the perfume casting. Okay, so, and then when Venerable Kamaka gave this explanation to the monks, it said that while he was speaking in his own mind, 
and in the minds of the other monks all the defilements were destroyed and they all became arahants just through this discourse okay so now in the disciple and higher training the notion the conceiving mind and I am are still present so there's no conceiving I am this or this is myself and so the Buddha instructs the trainee to train in the threefold training especially in concentration and insight in order to avoid conceiving to eliminate the conceivings driven by craving and conceit. He also advises the trainee not to delight in earth, not to seek pleasure in the various objects through craving. And the purpose for this, he says, why is that? So that he may fully understand it. Hear the word used, parinyayam, parinyayam, so that he can fully understand it. This means so that he can reach the full understanding, which is the unique characteristic of the Arahant. Okay, that is the basics of the basic explanation of this passage on training. The same thing is developed for all 24 bases, but since I explained those last time, we don't have to review them. Do you have anything? I would back to your beginning, I would like to come back to your beginning with the Kalyana Kutujan, which has I have two temperaments. One is more statue, and the other is more Dhammanusari too. And the difficulty is probably that we can call him Kalyana. Kutujana is an acceptance of the Lord Kama. Kama. Acceptance of... Oh, what, I see, what he accepts. Yeah, he has to accept that. So, in one way, he can have the courage of a Sada Musari uh, and jump in and just accept it and look around and see with his heart without uh, having an analysis of that particular uh, basic fate in Kama. Otherwise, he has to use the analytical way of a Dhammanusari by which he has to analyze the, the, that matter has a history and also name has a history. Yeah, well certainly I would say that the understanding or the, that's possessed by the Kalyana tradition, the right view would be more than just the right view of Kamba. You would have to have a right view that is in accordance with the form of the truth. That's called the satsana, technically the satsana lomika samadhi. Right view in accordance with the form of truth. Because otherwise, he wouldn't have that unique perspective which enables him to develop 
is wisdom to the extent of becoming entering the noble path. That is true, but there is somewhere a very thin line between the the Kalyana Putujana and the Amda Putujana. I said, yeah, that there's a spectrum. It's not a sharp fixed divide. Okay, are there any questions? So I'm aware this is a rather difficult subject. Yes. Uh, resolution higher training. Yeah. He uses his anya to understand things. Um, wisdom to understand things. And the other one, he uses his uh, vinyana. Vinyana? Well, everybody has vinyana. Vinyana isn't used to understand things. The disciple in higher training has to use panya to understand things. Yeah. I think he has to know exactly the process of Sanya as the forerunner of Panya. Even when it is so short that he cannot, that it switches very fast. Because Sanya is first, knowledge is afterwards. When he knows that mechanism, I think that he has that particular practical knowledge how to operate. I say that there's still some difference obtains between the disciples even from the stages of stream mentora on because the Buddha distinguishes them as Sadda the, the disciples who are the stream mentors, Sadda Vimutta and Dipatta the Dipatta that is this one who begins as a sadhanasari, one motivated by faith, becomes a stream enterer as one who is called sadha vimutta, literally liber- liberated by faith. And that continues all the way up to stage of non-return. So faith is still the motivating force for this person, even though the understanding comes through panya, through wisdom. The one who begins as a Dhammanusai becomes a stream enterer as Ditti Pakta, one who has attained the fruit through view, through understanding, and will continue, can continue with that emphasis up to the stage of non return. Buddha Ditti Pakta only have a chance to become a Panyavini? I don't think so. I think that he can develop then. If he develops the form of then he can be tired of the physical on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. But isn't it necessary before becoming a student enter to balance the faculties, wisdom, and sada? So yeah. that, uh, that the one who is coming on the on the sada way, he should uh, he should learn uh, the wisdom uh, yeah. faculty yeah. and balance that. A certain balance has to be achieved um, between them. But it seems that the difference in emphasis still continues. Yeah. We say that the balance is sufficient to make the breakthrough to the fruit. But still, the temperaments are different. So that the balance that's achieved between faith and wisdom for a 
sadhanusari might be different from the balance which is achieved between them by the dhammanusari. Perhaps at the moment of the fruit, or what just before they realize the fruit, maybe a perfect balance is achieved, but then after realizing, then the sadhanusari will still turn back to faith, whereas the dhammanusari will turn back to wisdom, to hunger. So I think. Uh, the other two faculties will help to balance that properly. The faculty of weary and the faculty of samadhi will help those other things uh, to take properly in tune. No? So it's really mindfulness, as you said, to have the function. Yeah, the mindfulness has always been yeah. there and the general center. Any, any further questions? accept any idea of soul because the soul is the view of self that there is something which is actually myself it's just this idea of I am it's just something which occurs spontaneously it, but they don't accept it as pointing to some real I some real self some real soul they don't hold to any notion of self or soul it's just that the mind, through its own momentum, gives rise to this notion of I am. The because the uh, scent of a flower yeah. is close to what, uh, to what you can misinterpret as a soul-like thing. It's for the worldling, you see, the notion of I am, that arises, and mine, that arises in everybody. But it's the worldling, without, who doesn't have the guidance of the Dhamma, who grasps grasps hold of that notion and then builds upon it the idea of self and soul. The noble disciple, by seeing the truth of the Dhamma, eradicates all views of self. He's seeing that all things are empty of any kind of real self. But it's just through, you could say, the force of beginningless habit that this notion I am crops up in the mind just through you might call the momentum of beginningless deluded thinking and once the wisdom has to still be mature to the point of parinya of the full understanding 
and when the full understanding is there then all notions of I and mine fall to the ground that's why in the Arahant there's no notion of I and mine we just they're like words that have no reference in his vocabulary but Radha is co- constantly haunted by that course of mind and I and uh, that Raga also is uh, kind of, as a kind of mimicry mm-hmm. for creating a self, no? Mm-hmm. It's a little, maybe I can give an analogy. <laughs> maybe it's like if you, I don't know if it will work, if you've seen like horror movies, an Alfred Hitchcock movie, like you know it's just a movie on the screen just actors and actresses and props and so on but when you go to see Psycho (laughs) you still get terrified (laughs) but you know that there's no real blood coming out of the faucet and that this what's his name Anthony Hopkins was it? Perkins Perkins that he isn't really a serial killer <laughs> and that the woman who was murdered on the screen that that's not a real woman but still when one sees one is even knowingly but one feels the fright the horror though one doesn't accept it as real events but if you take a little child in the child is watching then the child is really terrified and can't sleep at night thinks that, oh, afraid to turn the faucet in his home because blood might come pouring out. <laughs> and I really have to realize that everything is virtual reality except Nibbana. <laughs> then we jump uh, in. Okay, then we'll stop for this evening and we'll take the last part of the sutra next week.